Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. All right, now we're going to pick up chapter 27, part 2. It will be evident from the description already given of the druidical initiations as explained by Dr. Oliver that he agreed to the great extent in the views of Bryant and Faber. Stukely, one of the most learned of English students of the ancient world, believed that the druids were devoted to tree and serpent worship. He submits as evidence of the truth of this theory the great stone monuments of Stonehenge and Avebury, in the arrangement of whose stones he thought that he had traced a serpentine form. On the contrary, Ferguson scoffs in language not always temperate at views of Stukely, and not only denies the serpentine form of the stone remains in England, as described by that authority, but objects to the claim that the Druids ever erected or had anything to do with stone temples or monuments in any part of the world. But as Ferguson presents no positive arguments in support of his claims, and as he even casts some doubt upon the existence of Druids at all in Britain, his position is by no means satisfactory. He has sought to destroy a palace, but he has not attempted to build even a hut in its place. Denying all other theories, he has offered none of his own. If the Druids did not erect the stone monuments of Britain, who did? Until the contrary is proved beyond question, we have but little hesitation in crediting them to the Druids. But we need not enter into this discussion, which belongs more properly and peculiarly into the province of archaeology, the science of ancient things, than of Freemasonry. Some writers have held that the Druids were sun worshippers, and that to adore the great solar source of light was the national religion of the ancient Britons. Hence, these theorists are inclined to believe that Stonehenge and Avebury were really observatories where the worshippers of the sun might behold his rising, his daily course, and his setting. At Stonehenge, there are 30 roughly cut stone pillars, each from 4 to 8 feet wide, 2 to 4 feet thick, and 16 feet above the ground, and about 3 or 4 feet apart forming a circle 100 feet in diameter. A large flat stone within the circle is supposed to have been an altar. At Avebury, also in England, there are two adjoining stone circles, one 325 and the other 350 feet in diameter, and both enclosed by a circular wall of earth 1,200 feet in diameter. Edward Davies, in his Celtic researches on the origin, traditions, and language of the ancient Britons, and in his Mythology and Rites of the British Druids, maintains that there was among them a mutilated or fragmentary tradition of the Noachic deluge, as there was a among all heathen nations. The legend was similar to that of the flood of Deucalion, that character in the mythology of the Greeks, bearing in his career so close a resemblance to Noah, and was derived from Samothrace and the east, having been brought by a colony from one nation to another and preserved without interruption. Who, the supreme god of the Druids, He therefore supposes to have been the same as Noah, and he credits him with the various qualities that were divided among the many gods of the larger mythology of the Greeks and Romans, all of which, with Bryant and Faber, he considers refer to sun worship and to the flood. He therefore asserts that the Helio-Archite god of the Britons, the great Hu, was a pantheon, 
a group of gods in himself, who under his several titles and attributes included the whole series of gods whom the Greeks and other refined nations separated and arranged as individuals. In advancing his theory that the Druids were of Eastern origin and that they had brought from that source their religion and the rites, Davies has been sustained by the opinions of some more recent scholars, though they have traced the birthplace to a more distant region than the island of Samothracia off the coast of Greece. Many have believed that the Druids were Buddhists and that they came into Britain with the great tide of emigration from Asia, which brought the Aryan race westward into Europe. The religion of India must in that case have become debased in the course of its travels. It is admitted that the Druids cultivated the art of magic and in their rites were accustomed to sacrifice human victims, both of which practices were opposed to the philosophic spirit of Buddhism. The fact is notwithstanding, the authority of the Welsh bards and the scanty passages in Caesar, Tacitus, and a few other Roman writers, we are entirely at sea in reference to everything connected with the religious system of Druidism. Almost all the data on this subject are guesswork and mystery. Fanciful theories, the only foundation of which is in the imaginations of their framers, and bold assertions for the truth of which no competent authority can be given. Much of the confusion of ideas in respect to the customs and manners of the ancient Britons has arisen from the ignorance of the old writers in supposing that the inhabitants of Britain, at the time of the Roman invasion and long before, were of the one people. The truth is that the island was inhabited by two very distinct races. Those on the coast, coming from the opposite shores of Gaul, Germany, and Scandinavia, were a people who had made some progress in civilization. The interior of the island was populated by the original natives, who were uncivilized and even barbarous, and it was among the latter that the Druidical religion prevailed and its mystical and inhuman rites were practiced. James Ferguson, in his extended work on tree and serpent worship, supports his view. He says, From whatever point of view the subject is looked at, it seems almost impossible to avoid the conclusion that there were two races in England, an older and less civilized people, who in the time of the Romans had already been driven by the Celts into the fastness of the Welsh hills, and who may have been serpent worshippers and sacrificers of human victims, and that the ecumenical Romans confounded the two. He is, however, in error in supposing that the Romans were ignorant of this fact, for Caesar distinctly says in his Gallic War that the interior part of Britain was inhabited by those who were natives of the island. Thus, he clearly distinguishes the inhabitants of the interior from those who dwelt on the coast, and who, to use his expression, had passed over from Belgium. He speaks of them in another place as a rude and barbarous race, who in one of their embassies to him described themselves as a savage and unpolished people, wholly unacquainted with Roman customs. Speaking of the ancient Gauls, M. Thierry, in his history of that people, makes the following remarks, every one of which may be fairly said of the ancient Britons. He says, When we attentively examine the character of the facts concerning the religious belief of the Gauls, we are enabled to recognize two systems of ideas, two bodies of symbols and superstitions altogether distinct, in a word, two religions. One of these is altogether sensible, derived from the adoration of the phenomena of nature, and by its forms and by its literal development it reminds us of the polytheism of the Greeks. The other is founded upon a material pantheism, mysterious, metaphysical, and sacerdotal, and presents the most astonishing conformity with religions of the East. This last has received the name of Druidism from the Druids who were the founders and priests. To the former religion, M. Terry gives the name Gaulish polytheism, 
A similar distinction must have existed in Britain, though our own writers do not seem generally to have carefully observed it. In no other way can we attempt, with any prospect of success, to explain the differing traditions in relation to the religion of the ancient Britons. The Roman writers have credited a polytheistic form of religion to the people of the coast, derived apparently from Greece, the gods having only assumed different names. But this religion was very far removed in its character from the bloody and mysterious rites of the Druids, who seem to have brought the forms and objects, but not the spirit of their worship from the Far East. The Masonic writers who have sought to trace some connection between Druidism and Freemasonry have unfortunately yielded too much of their judgment to their imagination. Having adopted a theory they have in their investigations, substituted speculation for proof and guesses for facts. By an elastic process of reasoning, they have fitted all sorts of legends and traditions to whatever was required for their preconceived system. Preston said in his Illustrations of Masonry that the Druids retained among them many usages similar to those of Masons, and thus he assumed that there might be an affinity between the rites of the two institutions, leaving his readers, however, to determine the question for themselves. Godfrey Higgins, of all writers not claiming to write fiction, the most imaginative and the most given to guesswork, goes a step further and asserts that he has no doubt that the Masons were Druids, and that they may be traced downward to Scotland and York. Of this, he says, the presumption is very strong. Hutchinson thinks it's probable that some of the rites and institutions of the Druids are retained in forming the ceremonies of the Masonic Society. The theory of Dr. Oliver connected Druidism and Freemasonry. The doctor held down that there were two currents of Freemasonry that came side by side down the stream of time. These were the pure Freemasonry of the patriarchs that passed through the Jewish people to King Solomon and thence onward to the present day, and a schism from this pure foundation worked out by the pagan nations and developed in the ancient mysteries, which impure system he called the spurious Freemasonry of antiquity. He supposes Druidism to have come from this latter system. In support of this opinion, he collects in several of his works, especially in his History of Initiation, the rites and ceremonies of the Druids with those of the Eleusian, Dionysian, and other mysteries of the pagan nations, and attempts to show that the design of the initiation was the same in all of them and the forms very similar. True to his theory that the spurious Freemasonry was an impure secession or offshoot from the pure or patriarchal system, he denies that modern Freemasonry has taken anything from Druidism but admits that there is a likeness in the design and form of initiation in both, which would naturally arise from the origin of each in an older system. We have therefore to consider two theories in reference to the relations of Druidism and Freemasonry. The first is that Freemasonry has taken its system from that of the British Druids. The second is that while any such descent or succession of the one system from the other is not claimed, yet that there is a very great similarity in the character of both which points to some common origin. Mackey advanced a third theory, which he held to be far more easily harmonized than either of the others with the true facts of history. Brother Mackey's views will be examined later on in this essay. We may dismiss the second of these theories with the remark that it depends for support on the truth of the claim that there was a historical connection between the mysteries of the pagans and Freemasonry. But it seems clear that any similarity of form or design in these institutions is due not to any dependence or succession, but simply to the influence of that law of human action which makes men always pursue the same ends by like methods. 
Dr. Oliver goes so far in the attempt to sustain his theory of two systems of Freemasonry existing at the same time as to assert that at the time of the Roman invasion and after the establishment of Christianity in the island, the true and the spurious Freemasonry, that is the pure system as now practiced and the impure one of the Druidism, flourished at the same period and were considered as distinct institutions in Britain. There is no historical testimony to prove the claim of Dr. Oliver. Even if we were to accept the doctrine of Anderson that all great architects and pastimes were Freemasons, we could not dignify the rude carpenters of the early Britons and Anglo-Saxons with that title. The other theory which traces Freemasonry, or at least its rites and ceremonies, to Druidism will require a more extended review. We must first investigate the methods by which it is supposed that the Greeks, and Pythagoras in particular, forwarded it a knowledge of their mysteries to the Druids in their far-off and retired homes in uncivilized Britain. Probably the principal seats of the British Druids were in Cornwall and in the islands near to the coast, in Wales, and in the island of Mona, that is to say, on the southwestern shores of Britain. The Druids in these localities were within reach of any of the navigators from Europe or Asia who should have gone to that country for the purpose of trade. Just such a class of traders was found in the Phoenicians, a daring people noted for their spirit of enterprise across the seas. The testimony of the Greek and Roman writers is that by distant voyages in search of traffic, the Phoenicians had reached the southwestern shores of Britain, and that they loaded their vessels with tin, which was found in great quantities in Cornwall and the Scilly Islands on its coast. Those who suppose that the religious rites practiced by the Phoenicians at home were brought by them into Britain are required in proof of their theory to show that the Phoenicians were missionaries as well as merchants, that they remained long enough in Britain at each voyage to plant their own religious rites in the island, that these merchant sailors, whose main object was evidently the collection of profitable cargo, would give any portion of the time required for this object to teaching the barbarians whom they met in the way of business or of the dogmas of their own mystical religion that even if the Phoenicians were so disposed, the Britons were inclined during these necessarily brief visits to exchange their ancient religion, whatever it was, for the worship thus introduced by the newcomers. And finally, that the fierce and bloody superstition of the Druids, with its human sacrifices, bore any resemblance to or could have been obtained from the purer and more kindly religion of the Phoenicians. History tells us only that the Phoenician merchants visited Britain for the purpose of obtaining tin. On this fact, some Masonic theorists have erected a fanciful edifice of missionary enterprises successfully ending in the planting of a new religion. Experience shows us how little in this way was ever accomplished or even attempted by the modern navigators who visited the islands of the Pacific and other unknown countries for the purposes of discovery. Nor can we be ignorant of how slow is the progress in changing the religion of any people by the efforts of professed and devoted missionaries who have lived and labored for years among the people they sought to convert. They have made converts, it is true, but only in exceptional cases do they succeed in rooting out the old faith of a nation or a tribe and establishing their own in its place. It is not to be presumed that the ancient Phoenician merchants could, with less means and less desire, have been more successful than our modern missionaries. For these reasons, the proposition that Druidism was brought from Greece and Asia into Britain by the Phoenicians is one that is not to be accepted on any principle of historical evidence or probability. We have been told that Pythagoras visited Britain and instructed the inhabitants in the doctrine of metempsychosis, the passing after death of a soul from the one body to another. There is, however, no historical evidence that the sage of Samos ever went in his travels as far as Britain. 
Neither is it certain that the dogma of soul migration, as taught by him, is of the same character as that which was believed by the Druids. Besides, it is contrary to all that we know of the course pursued by Pythagoras in his visits to foreign countries. He went to learn the customs of the people and to get a knowledge of whatever science they might possess. We do not know that he ever visited Britain, but if he had done so, his purpose would have been to get rather than to give instruction. There is a further explanation offered by these theorists of a connection between Druidism and Freemasonry, that the former acquired a knowledge of the Eleusinian and other rites because of their relations with the Greeks during the celebrated invasion of the Celts, which extended to Delphos, and during the intercourse of the Gauls with the Grecian colony of Marseille. But in answer to these claims, it is sufficient to say that neither of these events occurred until after the system of Druidism must have been well established among the people of Britain and of Gaul. The principal argument against any connection of Druidism and Freemasonry is the difference of the two systems and their opposition to each other. The bloody superstition of the Druids was developed in their sacrifice of human victims as a mode of satisfying their offended gods. Their doctrine of a future life was entirely different from the pure belief in immortality which is taught by Freemasonry and developed in its symbols. Dr. Mackey's opinion, advanced in the place of the two other theories already discussed, traces Druidism neither to Phoenicians, nor to Pythagoras, nor to the Greeks. He held that the ancient inhabitants of Britain were a part of the Celtic division of a wandering people in southern Russia, the Semei, who, springing from their Aryan origin in the Caucasian mountains, first settled for a time in the region of Asia, which lies around the Euxine or Black Sea, and then passed over into the north and west of Europe. One detachment of them entered Gaul, and another, crossing the North Sea, made their home in Britain. Probably these wanderers carried with them some memories of the religious faith they had learned from the original stock whence they sprung. A leading fact in the study of humanity is the tendency of gypsy races springing from those that are tillers of soil to decline in civilization. The claim is also made that the Druids were Buddhist. This might be so, for Brahmanism and its offspring, Buddhism, were the religions of the early Aryan stock whence came the Druids. But it is very evident that in the course of their travels, the faith of their fathers must have become impure. Between Buddhism and Druidism, the only connecting link is the dogma of the transfer of souls. The rites of the two sects are unlike. We may suppose, therefore, that the system of Druidism was the pure invention of the Britons, just as the mysteries of Osiris were the work of some Egyptian priest or body of priests. What assistance the Britons had in the making of their mystical system must have been derived from faint recollections of the dogmas of their fatherland, which from the very dimness of those memories must have been misunderstood. That there is proof or much probability is doubtful that they obtained any suggestions in the construction or the improvement of their system of religious rites from the Phoenicians, from the Greeks, or from Pythagoras. If, for the sake of argument, we accept for a time the theory that Freemasonry and the mysteries came from a common source, and that thereby there is a connection between the two, we cannot fail to see on an examination of the doctrines and ceremonies of the Druids that they bear no relation to those of the mysteries of Egypt or of Greece. Thus the link is missing, which would connect Druidism with Freemasonry through the initiations of the East. There is not in Druidism a close resemblance to Freemasonry. Of course, there is the unimportant circumstance that both have mystical ceremonies. There were the voyages of the candidate in Druidism, after a period of long solitude and confinement, his pursuit by the angry goddess Seridwen and her dogs, his dangerous passage in a coracle or small wicker or basket boat over the rough waters, and his final landing and reception by the archdruid. These may have been referred, as Dr. Oliver thought, to the migration of the soul through different bodies. 
but just as probably they symbolize the troubles and sufferings of human life and the progress towards perfection of mind and morals. They bear not the slightest analogy to the mystical death in Freemasonry, which is the symbol of a resurrection to a future and immortal life. Therefore, the bold assertion of Paine in his essay on the origin of Freemasonry, that it is derived from and is the remains of the religion of the ancient Druids, simply shows in the opinion of Dr. Mackey that he was a mere pretender in the subject he sought to treat. Equally unsound is the proposition of the more learned Faber when he says that the Druids are probably the real founders of English Freemasonry. Brother Mackey therefore arrived at this conclusion that from what we learn of the two institutions from historical knowledge of the one and our personal experience of the other, Freemasonry has no more relation or reference or similitude to Druidism than the pure system of Christianity has to the barbarous fetichism of the tribes of Africa. And that concludes chapter 27. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.